Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 12, 49 to 53. 49 to 53. I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Our Lord is now explaining in verses 49 to 51, 49 to 51, that the gospel of Christ is actually a gospel that shakes things up, that consumes stubble and purifies gold and silver. That's the way he's describing the gospel, the true gospel of Christ. And because the gospel shakes things up, it consumes that which is worthless or the dross, it separates the pure metal from the dross of the metal. He's now explaining that this is the case with the gospel that he is preaching. Yes, gentle Jesus, gentle Jesus, the Jesus of the true Bible, the true Jesus of the true Bible. He's a Jesus that causes division. He did not come to bring peace on the earth. He came to bring division. That is to set people apart so that the people of God rise to the surface and the people of the devil are set aside and eventually thrown into the lake of fire. This is why Jesus came to the earth. And he warns us in verses 40, uh, 52 to 53, in 52 to 53, he warns us that it's going to start with our own families. It will start there first. We think that they should be the first ones to believe, and we hope they, that they do, but it's not necessarily the case. There may be among our own family members those who are opposed to the gospel. Let's see how he describes it. Verse 49. He says, I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. He, his purpose, his mission, he's asserting his mission as, I have come to cast fire upon the earth, for the purpose of casting fire upon the earth. He did not say that he came in order to make everything good and better for every individual. He did not say he came to bring about peace on the earth regardless of the condition of men, regardless of what they do, regardless of their actions, their belief or unbelief. He didn't say anything like that. In fact, he says his purpose is to cast fire upon the earth. That's why he came. He came to bring to the forefront, to heighten the tension that exists between God and the devil and who is on the side of God and who is on the side of the devil. He came for that purpose, to cast fire. Now, fire, as we said earlier, fire can have a good purpose if it is smelting and melting the gold and the silver, because then it will bring the purification to the forefront and the dross or the impurities will drift away. They, there is a separation that occurs with fire. That fire is good for the people of God, for the sheep of God, for those who know God, for the elect. It's good for them, the believers, 
the fire will help us and purify us. This gospel is meant to purify us and to help us overcome the sin in our life, the dross and the impurities in our life, so that we come forth as gold, as Job said. This is the reason for the gospel. And not only for that, for those who know God, but also for those who don't know God. Fire is for the purpose of consuming them, of destroying them, of obliterating their existence, of of showing that they are worthless, that stubble and chaff are of no value, of no value, so it only deserves to be burned up. This is those who profess to know God. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Titus 1.16 They are worthless for any good deed, and because they are worthless, they deserve to be burned up. Jesus said He came to do that. He came to make these distinctions upon the earth. And how I wish it were already kindled. Now, I believe he's saying this in in anticipation, in a a way. He came for that purpose, but he is coming in his first coming in order to prepare everyone for his second coming. So in his first coming, he comes to bring to the forefront and to heighten the, the awareness that we all need to be ready for his second coming. He wishes that the fire were already kindled. That is, the ultimate fire were already ready and that eternity had, uh, has already started. The day of judgment has happened, and that we are in two groups, either in that group that will be with Christ, or in that other group that will be with the devil. This is what he's saying here. He came for this purpose. Notice it's a longing. He explained his purpose in the first sentence of verse 49, and his longing, how I wish it were already kindled. He has a longing, an earnest desire for this fire to be already kindled, the ultimate fire to already happen. Jesus' desire in the second part, his purpose in the first part. Shouldn't we be like him? We all say we need to be like Jesus. Sometimes we wear a band that says, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And we think, that whatever Jesus does, whatever he says, whatever his values, whatever his goals, those should be ours, which is true, which is true. But have we considered this? Have we considered this, that the gospel is actually meant to bring to the surface the divisions that exist in humanity, that everybody who claims to be a Christian is really not a Christian? So to bring those kinds of people to the forefront. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen, For it is necessary, for it, there must be divisions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. He says there must be divisions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. It's necessary for us to know who is on the side of God and who is not. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. 1 John 2.19 This is also what Jesus is talking about here. He came for this division to know who's going to stick with the truth and who's going to walk away from it. Who's going to stay with those who preach the truth 
And who's going to walk away from those who preach the truth? This is why Jesus came. This is the hard part or the severe part of Jesus that nobody wants to talk about. Nobody wants to talk about this. Nobody wants to preach this. Nobody wants to live this way. Nobody wants to tell somebody else about the gospel in this way. They don't want to bring up sin. They don't want to bring up the need for reconciliation between men and God, that people are lost without Christ as Savior. They don't want to bring up that subject at all. They only want to bring up how God will be with them. God will answer their prayers. God will give them everything that they want. God will give them health and wealth. So on. This is the only thing that people like to bring up when they talk about the gospel. When that's not really true. That's not the true preaching of it. It has to include this. Yeah, I said this is a longing or an earnest desire of Christ. My Bible, NASB, correctly has an exclamation. How could Jesus have said this without him exclaiming it? He did. And if he exclaimed it this way with this kind of emotion, this is the way we should feel. We should feel this way too. That that day of judgment would come, that we would all be distinguished and distinct, whether we're in one group or in the other group, whether we are sons of light or sons of darkness. Further, verse 50. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. With another exclamation. He is distressed. He has a longing or a wish in 49, and he has a distress in verse 50. And firstly, he says, but I have a baptism to undergo. A baptism. He means his imminent death. In Romans 6, especially 6.4, baptism into his death. The baptism that we undergo, in immersion into water, signifies dying to our old nature, and then we come up, uh, come up out of the water to our new nature, to a resurrection of life. We ought to die to sin and live to God. Die to our old nature and live according to the new nature, the new creation. And Jesus is saying that his baptism, see, he is saying metaphorically that he's going to be baptized, but literally he's going to die. The reverse is true of us in our baptism. We don't literally die when we are baptized. We spiritually die, but we literally are put under the water and come up out of the water. In this case, Jesus is speaking the opposite way. He's saying he's going to undergo immersion into literal death and then rise from that death. Because in the baptism that he spoke of, just as in all baptisms, Nobody stays under the water. They come up out of it. So it has always signified dying and rising again. That's what he wants to happen. He says, I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. He's distressed because he knows it's going to be a difficult journey. He knows it's going to be a difficult journey. We know a, a taste of that from the way he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, our Father, if you are willing, let this cup pass before me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's an expression of the kind of intense suffering and burden that he bore on our behalf. This is the kind of thing that he experienced until when he died and rose again from the dead, then that is what puts the final 
the, the final nail in the coffin of this analogy, that is, that the gospel has been accomplished, and this is what, in this kind of finality, this is the finality with which the gospel must be preached. You have heard it this way, now it's been accomplished this way, now therefore preach it this way. This is what he's longing to have accomplished. Further, 51, do you suppose that I came to bring to grant peace on earth? Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. He did not come to grant peace on earth, in a sense. In a sense. We will clarify. He says, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? Now, when he says this, the Jews, in one sense, they were rightfully longing for Christ to come or Messiah to come and do away with all the evil on the earth. Yes, in that sense, they were correct. However, they thought of it mostly or ex uh, exclusively in political terms to the exclusion of the spiritual implications. And he is saying here, I did not come in that sense. I did not come. When I came in my first coming, I did not come to establish a political kingdom. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't political implications, but he did not come for that political kingdom. He came for his spiritual kingdom to prepare people for that future day when he will obliterate all evil. This is what they did not understand. Because they did not understand that, it caused them to stumble and fall. It caused them to reject the gospel. Because, and, and it's not just the Jews. The Jews were looking for this because some of those promises are in the Old Testament, that Messiah would conquer this world and have an eternal kingdom. But people generally look for that. Isn't that why so many people live and so many people do whatever they do in, in society, in politics, because they think and they want somebody to rise up who will take care of all of their problems. So let him take care of all of our problems and let us do our, our merry and happy things day by day and leave it to them to take care of the business. That's the kind of way that everybody all around the world, all kinds of people, not just Jews, that, that's the way they look at it. And he's saying here, I did not come for that. I did not come to make you physically happy, to give you rest from warfare, and to remove the yoke of political slavery. I did not come for that. I tell you no, but rather division. He did not come to bring peace and unity in that sense, in the wrong sense, but he came to bring division. He came to divide people. He came to make a distinction. He came to say, if any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. He came to say those kinds of things. And those who would come, will come. But those who would not come, they walk away. They say it's too hard, it's too difficult. I don't want that. That's not what I bargained for. I didn't sign up for that. This is what they say. My God would not say that. My God would not expect that. That's not the kind of God I worship. This is what they say. But Jesus saying, no, I came to bring division. This is the kind of Jesus that people hate. If people absolutely and correctly knew 
the Jesus of the Bible, even today, if he were living, they would rail against him. They would slander him. They would accuse him of being a Samaritan, of being insane, of being demon-possessed. They would spit in his face. They would pick up stones to, to stone him to death. And they would rally together to get the political authorities to put him to death. The people would do just the same thing. If they knew this Jesus, who said that he came to bring division. He came to bring a division. Then he hits it close to home. Right, actually, in the middle of the home. 52 and 53. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, Mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He he says divide, division in 51, divided in 52, and 53, if we did not hear him correctly, they will be divided, he says a third time. There will be division. Father against son, where you would think that there would be harmony, there should be harmony, there should be obedience, there should be respect, there should be uh, a love for the son in a very congenial, gentle way. And then son against father. The son should be honoring the father, but that's not going to happen. He's going to dishonor the father. Mother against daughter, daughter against mother, same thing. Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. Yeah, people will say that already happens, it naturally happens but it's going to be more severe now. More severe because now there is a uh, spiritual barrier between these in-laws, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Jesus will bring separation and division in families. And why? Because not every member of the family will believe the gospel. If they don't believe the gospel there will be this severe separation that takes place between one member of the family and another. Why? Because the one chooses to follow Christ. The other does not choose to follow Christ. The one loves Christ and wants to please Him, has now a new creation, a new heart, a different set of values, and lives in a different way than the other who wants to live for himself, the world, the devil. There's two, two roads. There's a separation. There's a fork in the road that happens in the family because of Christ. He came to bring this to the surface. Jesus came to bring this reality to the surface. Now, let's look at a few cross-references that will help explain and expand on this. Micah, Micah the prophet. Micah chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. Micah 7 Verse 1, Micah was one of the first ones earlier to preach like this. He says, Woe is me, for I am like the fruit pickers and the grape gatherers. There is not a cluster of grapes to eat or a first ripe fig which I crave. The godly person has perished from the land, and there is no upright person among them. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. Concerning evil, both hands do it well. The prince asks also the judge for a bribe, and a great man speaks the desire of his soul, so they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright like a thorn hedge. 
the day when you post a watchman, your punishment will come. Then their confusion will occur. Do not trust in a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. For son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. He's saying that he is like a fruit picker. He's looking for good fruit, but he can't find any. He can hardly find any good fruit. In verse 2, the godly person has perished from the land, and there is no upright person among them. He's saying, I can't find anybody. Anybody who's righteous, anybody that is like good fruit. Everybody is like rotten fruit. And then he describes their evil. Both hands do it well. They hunt. They lie in wait for bloodshed. They ask for bribes and take bribes. They weave it together. Weave it together like perhaps like a spider web. They weave it together like a poisonous spider. And he says in four, the best of them is like a briar, the most upright like a thorn hedge. What's the purpose of briars and thorn hedges? Right? If you have to make use of the land, what do you do with that? You uproot them, you burn them, you get rid of those kinds of plants. That's what Jesus said that he came to bring fire on the earth. He came to bring fire to get rid of people like this. And then he mentions the, the people. Five. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. Uh, do, do not have confidence in a friend. Do not trust in a neighbor. Your neighbor, your friend who trusted you, who talked nicely to you, even your wife, it says in verse five. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. Even your own wife may turn against you because you believe the gospel and she does not. And verse 6, son, father, daughter, mother, daughter-in-law, mother-in-law. And then he generalizes in case we think we're not going to be included. He says, a man's enemies are the men of his own household. This is the way it goes. Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10, 34. Matthew 10, 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. He did not come to bring peace, he says again. He came to bring a sword. A sword. What is that sword? According to the, the uh, Ephesians chapter 6, 6, 10 to 20, it's the word of God, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, the the gospel, the word of truth. That's what it is. And even in um, Hebrews chapter 4, 12 and 13, it describes the word of God in that way, able even to divide or pierce as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow. That's how precise God's word is. And when it is applied, when it is obeyed, when it is believed by a member of the household, the other members of the household may turn against him. 
And then he says, and warns us in 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Which means that if the other member of the household turns against you and you are tempted to compromise, to concede, and say, okay, no, I, I won't be serious about this Christianity stuff. I won't do that anymore. I'll, I'll live and I'll do what, what you want me to do. I'll believe like you, you want me to believe. I'll do that. He's saying, don't let that happen. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus will disown us if we disown him. That's what he means. And we have to be willing to die on the cross. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. If Jesus died on the cross for us, what makes us think that he will be pleased if we are unwilling to die for him? He died to save us from sin. Why can't we die on a cross to resist sin? The sin of compromise because we're persecuted. And also Luke 14. Luke 14, 25. Now great multitudes were going along with him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And he, then he further illustrates. Now, 25. Great multitudes were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, See, when multitudes are following, why do they follow? Because they think they're going to get something good. They don't want the hard sayings. They want just the easy sayings to make it easy on their own life, to make it easy on their emotions, to make it easy on their mind, to make it easy physically. They don't want to be stretched. They don't want to be challenged. That's why multitudes gather around a teacher. But Jesus knows this, so he confronts them. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This is what he meant when he said it earlier. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not give up his life uh, shall lose it. He's saying this. If we don't give up our own life now, whatever we value, our old nature, our, old, our, our sins, things that keep us away from God, and from being reconciled to God and being at peace with God, if we do not give them up, if we do not hate our own life, he cannot be my disciple. Is that ambiguous? Is that ambiguous? That sounds clear to me, but it, it's amazing. It's amazing how people say, well, that verse is unclear, or Jesus did not expect me to do this or to do that. He, he did not expect this kind of hard road. He did not preach a narrow gate. When actually he did. He did not preach the, uh, the narrow way. When actually he did. He preached all of that. And he didn't mean anything else but what we're talking about. Now, a word of clarification. Doesn't the Bible expect us to live in harmony? To be at peace with one another? To love each other? Yes, in a sense. 
And we will explain that sense just to make sure that skeptics of the Bible do not call the Bible contradictory. Let's clarify. Firstly, Luke 1. Luke chapter 1. And we have to give Luke and Jesus the benefit of the doubt because we're studying Luke, Luke 12. We just cited Luke 14. And now this passage in Luke 1. Let's see what Luke says here. He's speaking of the ministry of John the Baptist. In John's gospel and Jesus' gospel, one and the same gospel, Luke 1.16, And he, John, will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, in this case, families are being united. It says, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. What's he meaning? That is, when father and son, when mother and daughter, when husband and wife, when they all believe the gospel, there will be this unity. There will be this harmony. They will not have this division between believer and unbeliever because they both believe. They all believe. This is the kind of unity that is surrounded um, or surrounding the gospel. It is the gospel that unifies. If we truly believe that gospel, that is what brings us together. John chapter 13. John 13, 34. 13, 34, and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. He says his commandment, that his new commandment, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. He showed by his example how believers, true disciples, love one another. And this is how men will know, all men will know, that we are his disciples if we have love for one another. Here too, based on the gospel, because we all believe it, that's what unites us, and this is the kind of love that we express to one another. And then, Ephesians chapter 5. We will now see from Ephesians 5, 5, 28 and 29, that this is applied in a specific situation. 5, 28. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. And also verse 30, because we are members of his body. Here, the Apostle Paul applies the second greatest commandment, which Jesus did, love one another, in John 13. Paul the Apostle applies it to the closest of all human relationships, that of husband and wife, and he says, he who loves his own wife loves himself. When that love is happening in this context of Christ loving the church, in that kind of, in that vein, when it's being done that way, then there will be this unity because we're all members of his body. Another case is 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy 5 verse 8. How is true love shown here? 1 Timothy 5.8, true love and unity. 1 Timothy 5.8, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith 
and is worse than an unbeliever. Here he's speaking of the man, the man or the son or the grandson, who does not provide for his widowed mother or widowed grandmother. And we see that from verse 4. If any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. The children and grandchildren should be helping their widowed mother or grandmother. And if they don't do that, if they're not showing love that way, unity that way, harmony that way, then they deny the faith and they are worse than unbelievers. So that's a, a proper application of loving and bringing unity in the family. And uh, one more verse, and that will be Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 16. So we'll read 16 to 18. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Be of the same mind, he says. Do not be haughty or proud. Associate with the lowly, not just with the rich and the famous and the highly educated. Uh, do not be wise in your own estimation. This is our problem, right? We are wise in our estimation, not in the sight of God. And then 17, never pay back evil for evil. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Now he's going beyond the bounds of the church. Beyond the bounds of the church, he says, respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Which means, if we have a neighbor, a co-worker, a schoolmate, whoever it is, we ought to seek peace with them, live in harmony with them, as far as it depends on us. Not, we're not supposed to go around picking fights. We're not supposed to be agitators. That's not the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to speak righteously and live righteously. And to the extent that we can be in harmony or at peace with others, be at peace with them. Notice carefully, if possible, so far as it depends on you. So we do the best we can by prayerful dependence on the power of God and the grace of God to help us as far as it depends on us, and then we leave it up to them. If they choose, while we have been peaceful with them, we have been kind to them, if they choose to do evil against us, to slander us, to mock us, to persecute us, then that's what happens. But it's not our fault, it's their fault. But at that point, it's their fault, not our fault. So when Jesus said he came to bring uh, division, and even among family, the Bible means among those who don't believe. We try to, among those who don't believe, live at peace with them. And if they choose to bring division, because we speak righteously and live righteously, then it's on them. It's their guilt. It's their bloody hands before God, not our bloody hands. And... In the sphere of influence we have, we pray for our children, our spouses, whoever it is in our family who, who does not know Christ. We pray for them and we do the best we can to live in harmony with them, to love them, provide for them, because we want them to believe the gospel just like we do.
That's what Jesus meant. No contradiction in the Bible. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.